This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with Mark Alley, our Editor-in-Chief. Good morning. Hey, Mark. Another beautiful summer day in the Midwest. Do you want me to brag about what I did this morning? Yes, I do, because that's one reason you can do what you're doing, because we have beautiful weather here. Yes, well, I biked to the train station, 23 miles, and then I ran from the train station, three and a half miles. To here? To yes. the office? Yes. Okay. Because my triathlon is now in 10 days. Oh, my gosh. So. You're my hero. Yeah, and I'm so much your hero that you've you verbally committed to doing a triathlon next year. <laughs> I don't recall doing that. <laughs> and yesterday, I recall I said I would think about it. Verbally committing to think about it. <laughs> well, that's one type of verbal commitment. Okay. Who's joining us today? Joining us today is Walter Kim. He is the pastor for executive leadership at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Before that, he was lead minister at the fabled Park Street Church in Boston. He has a Ph.D. from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilization, and he serves on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals, and even more important, on the board of Christianity Today. Hey, Walter. Hello. Great to hear from you, and I'm so glad you had the chance to visit our offices a couple weeks ago. Oh, thanks, Morgan. It was really a delight to be there. I'm also glad that we get a chance to talk to you today. I'm actually just going to get into our discussion right now and tell people. Maybe they have a clue based on some of the info we shared in your bio. This week was the first year anniversary of the alt-right's violent rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Over the course of that weekend, attendees and counter-demonstrators engaged in violent confrontations, and one alt-right member drove a car into a crowd, killing a woman and injuring dozens more. Since last year's events, Charlottesville has a new mayor, a black woman who was elected last fall. Further, as the New York Times reported, and I quote, nearly every official who had power at that time has resigned or retired. The city attorney who concluded there was no legal way to stop the rally took another job in another town. The police chief stepped down in the wake of a critical report accusing him of failing to protect the public on the day of the rally. The city manager who oversaw the city's response will leave by the end of the year. As the story goes on to report, many of those that are in the town still are divided. Some say that last year's brazen racist attitudes came from outside of the city. Others say they are part of the town's racist lineage. In the midst of this division, this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted perspective from the church. Does conflict persist among Charlottesville Christians? And where is God moving in Charlottesville? So before we get into our discussion and get a sense of what's going on from Walter, I want to take the time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And our July-August issue has this really interesting report about the Protestant work ethic. Do you want to talk about it, Mark? Yeah, the title of the article is Good News for the Poor, and it looks into whether Protestant theology uh, drives economic outcomes. Uh, and it's it's the study of a that was done in the Philippines that uh, 
in a sense, gave us a chance to find that out in a large-scale effort. I appreciate this article because the anecdotal experience of my life suggests that this can be true. I remember visiting a remote village in Oaxaca in which previously, so we're talking about just a few hundred people, a 12-mile walk from the nearest road. But before, uh, the town was economically depressed. Uh, That was because most of the men spent most of their days uh, sitting around and drinking and getting drunk. But a Christian evangelist came through and uh, preached the gospel, and many people became converted, and those men stopped drinking, and they started working hard, and they started farming their land, and there was economic prosperity in the air in that village, and it was a result of the coming of the gospel. So I've seen that on a small-scale effort, and this uh, article looks at it at a larger-scale effort in the Philippines to show the type of effect Christian preaching can have in a community like that, uh, so the social effect it can have. So this is actually some research that you said that people can read about and see what the researchers and economists found. If you would like to read that particular article, again, you can do so by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Walter. I just wanted to start our discussion today by you painting a picture of Charlottesville as a city for us, especially those of us who are not Southerners, you know, haven't spent that much time in Virginia. What What is this city like? Well, a few years back, uh, Charlottesville was named the happiest city in America by the U.S. Bureau of Economic Research. And of course, as I was interviewing uh, to consider this position at Trinity, which I've been in for about a year, that research entailed just Googling or finding studies on what life in Charlottesville is like. And I certainly can attest that it is a gorgeous town along the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's also a vibrant town, the presence of the flagship University of Virginia, as well as numerous startups and nonprofit organizations uh, really lend a creative bent, uh, vibrant bent to the city. So the city itself, it somehow pulls off being both historic, uh, the, the hometown of Thomas Jefferson, but also hip with uh, a lot of vibrancy that you would associate with the college town. So as a city, as you drive into it, or in my case, consider moving here, it really has a compelling narrative uh, of a place to be that is happy. But of course, that narrative was punctured uh, last year in the most stark way possible. Okay, so you've given us a good sense of how it maybe saw itself before last year at this time. And then you also mentioned that you've been on staff for about a year. So that means that you moved in the month of August. And I would just love you to kind of describe the scene that your family moved into. Yeah, so um, last year on Saturday, August 12th, I was in Charlottesville, actually in the final stages of interviewing at Trinity Church. Uh, So here uh, we were at the church, and as the day was unfolding, uh, these updates would be coming from various folks about what what was happening at other parts of the city. Uh, of the growing presence of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, some of the statements that were being made, the tensions that were increasing, uh, some of the anti-fascist counter-protesting, as well as the very large presence of of people of goodwill seeking to declare that Charlottesville would not wish to welcome the racist influences that were um, coming into the city. 
And so here I was uh, interviewing and wondering, um, what, what am I getting myself into? And yet on the other side, really compelled by this sense that if the gospel can have an impact here in a city that is demonstrating some of the fractures that exist, not just in the South, but all throughout our country, uh, then what a powerful witness could that be? And so it, in fact, was even more compelling for me to consider our call um, coming down to Charlottesville. And as we moved our family in the, the weeks after that, we noticed uh, getting settled into uh, our place uh, and shopping for furniture that everywhere we went at the end of August, whether it was shopping at the grocery store and people striking up conversations because people here are very friendly. So even in the line, conversations were struck up or if we were shopping for furniture or just trying to get the kids settled into new school situations. Uh, every time folks found out that we were from outside of Charlottesville, the consistent refrain was, we're glad you're here. We want you to know that this is not our city. And yet, I would also have to say, as we have befriended folks here in Charlottesville, uh, particularly friends that come from the African-American community in Charlottesville who have been here generationally, their story often includes the comments, yeah, this, this really is our city, and we've not always dealt with this honestly. In some ways, both of those statements are true, and that's the complexity of the tensions that people uh, experience here in Charlottesville. And, and even in the course of just one year being here, uh, we've discovered that very much to be the case, that, that it is a complex place uh, with an amazingly rich history that demonstrates the complexity stretches back for centuries. Can you expand on your remarks that both of those understandings of the reality of Charlottesville are true? Yeah, I mean, I think there is uh, a recognition that the, many of the elements uh, that were present last year were people from outside of the city, where they were folks flying in or driving from other parts of the country. And so in that regard, it's not the city. In another regard, it's not the city in the sense that uh, Charlottesville, it's the happiest place. I mean, it wouldn't be called the happiest place if it were a place of consistent and overt tension. So the eruption of that kind of tension is not, is not part of the ethos uh, of this city, which in many ways has some of the cultural vibrancy of a large city, but not some of the urban tensions that would exist in large cities, in my case, coming from Boston having lived there for 20 years and having been born in New York City and having a sense of what those cities are like. So some of the tensions that you might see in a very crowded urban setting don't exist here. And so in that way, it really felt like, okay, that statement is true. This is not the city that I've experienced this past year. But it is the city in the sense that um, these tensions really do exist. And the presence of the monuments raise up these tensions. Uh, the recent history of an area of the city called Vinegar Hill uh, that was a predominantly African-American community within the city of Charlottesville that was demolished and the community, by and large, removed to other parts uh, of the city into a high housing project and the real loss of home ownership by the African-American community as well as business ownership and the loss of the Vinegar Hill area is very recent, and, and some of our friends um, remember that history. 
of losing uh, homes and businesses and having to um, be dislocated and in many ways uh, starting at a great disadvantage. And then you push back to Jim Crow era and then, of course, pushing to the era of slavery. And so in that regard, there is a part in which this is the story of Charlottesville. And of course, I'm a newcomer. I'm discovering this. I don't claim to be an expert by any means, but certainly am eager to hear as a pastor the pain of the city, the history of the city, um, recognizing that this is the place of, of ministry that the Lord has called me to personally, has called our church to. And so we're eager to engage honestly with both history as well as with possibility and hope. I mean, in some ways, your observations are uh, make a lot of sense in that uh, a human being, um, you know, I might say, I might say about myself. Uh, on, generally, I'm a uh, happy, productive person who has a lot of things about life that I really enjoy. But like every human being, I have these darker parts of me, these my history, sinful habits, etc., that are also there at the same time. So if it's true of a human being to be a complex person, uh, it's it's got to be even more true of a larger. Uh, social institutions like a city. So I think uh, I think that's an important thing to recognize for us, and I'm glad you're 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 saying that out loud in front of God and everybody. Because our temptation, of course, is to try to paint things in one direction or another. When actually, uh, human history is this this crazy mix that's always both uh, sometimes disturbing, sometimes interesting, sometimes fascinating, sometimes just amazing. Mark, that is so true, and uh, it's amazing that the Lord would be this gracious and compassionate toward uh, creatures that are so conflicted and complicated. Uh, and it's very easy to cast stones not recognizing uh, that what the observation that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, um, made about the human heart is so true that, you know, darkness cuts across the human heart. And who wants to deal with that within our own heart? It'd be much easier to say darkness exists out there in the other, however we would wish to characterize the other, um, but really it exists in all of us, which, which means that those who are seeking to present the solutions are complicated beings as well. Uh, and so what a state of need that we find ourselves in. I'm wondering, Walter, could you talk a little bit about how the Charlottesville protests directly affected your current congregation? There has been lament, an urge to repent, a galvanizing toward action, a befuddlement about what that action should be, a desire to individually engage and institutionally engage, but again, a complexity in knowing what does that exactly look like. Trinity has, for the past decade, been thinking very seriously uh, about the issue of race, and as I've entered into uh, ministry here and I've taken time to listen, that has become apparent to me, that this is not a novel issue uh, to Trinity, the issue of race and racism in America. Uh, but certainly the events of last year have taken that serious consideration and lent it an urgency to the moment that we exist. And so this past year, the church has engaged in a series of conversational dinners on race, recognizing sometimes that the most honest and redemptive conversations can happen around a dinner table. For good reason uh, that covenants in the ancient world 
were often ratified over a meal. Uh, and there's something about the table of communion as well that communicates the kind of reconciliation that can occur around a meal. So the church has sought to create these um, smaller venues in which people gather around a dinner table and have a guided discussion on race. There have been training sessions uh, with our church leadership on how to think about both the theological as well as the practical considerations on the issue of race. A number of classes, uh, partnership with other churches, uh, a major forum that we conducted on race this past spring, thinking about the issue in terms of both individual and institutional racism that requires both personal and public responses. So there have been a number of attempts to address the issue this past year in our church, but we recognize that it's not a challenge that we could say, hmm, let's, let's do something this year and then we can check it off and move on to other issues. It's both a sprint and a marathon, uh, a sprint recognizing that there are some pressing issues because of the events of August 12th that require us to engage with measure of ur urgency. But it's a marathon in the sense that whatever solutions, whatever engagement, whatever redemptive transformation that our church would be privileged to be a part of, it's not going to happen quickly uh, because the solution needs to match the longevity of the problem. And, and so we're in the long haul in terms of seeking for reconciliation, redemption, justice, and perhaps even more centrally, an ethic of Christ-like love that would draw people to him and to um, one another. Yeah, that, that mention of a marathon is, is the frustrating part, because <clears throat> as Americans, we do like to have things solved quickly. But as I've learned uh, in a, something I've just discovered I have is this carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, my doctor t tells me and other people tell me that if it took months, if years to develop, it's going to take months or years to heal, which was not good news as far as I was concerned. But that's even more true in the moral life. If you've been developing a moral habit individually or as a society that's been developing for 200 years, uh, don't, don't be surprised if it's going to take you two centuries to begin to see some real progress in the healing of that. And again, that is not an excuse for being lax on the issue. It requires hard training and engagement. And intentionality. Yeah, and I think doing things that don't seem radical or don't seem to solve any immediate problems, like sit, sitting down together and talking about it and praying together about it, on the surface don't seem like they're much, but I think they're part of that long-term healing that takes place. I think that's what the role they play. Walter, what did last year's protests reveal to you about the state of church unity in Charlottesville? I was really heartened. Again, this was a period of time where I was interviewing and considering coming here. And the disturbing events of August 12 were matched with the very inspiring events of August 13, which may not have gotten the attention of the national media that August 12 would have garnered. But for those uh, who were here, and certainly for me as an outsider observer at that point, it really resonated deeply with me. And so what I mean by the events of August 13, um, that Sunday, was the sense in which um, I certainly saw this at uh, Trinity, but I saw this later on uh, in the evening, that churches were dealing with the lament and the urgency of petition, the crying out to the Lord for redemption, 
the recognition of the gravity of the problem, that worship was occurring in individual congregations in the morning, uh, as should be, because these were families that were hurting, the family of God that were, were hurting in various specific locations and congregations. Uh, but that throughout the city, there were joint services being held in which pastors from the African-American community and uh, predominantly white churches uh, cutting across denominational lines, as well as theological emphases, were gathering together and being hosted at various churches, uh, again, throughout the city. Uh, and the kinds of praying and worshiping and petitioning that were occurring, the kinds of lamenting and exhortation, uh, encouragement that was occurring was really inspiring and, and a very compelling picture that as dysfunctional as the family of God can be, and we have our dysfunctions, there is a real possibility and there is real expression of redemptive power uh, in Christ. And however imperfectly we may be coming together, there is a desire uh, to come together. And so uh, I saw that from the very beginning. And I continue to see that through this year, uh, various pastor collectives in which uh, groups of um, leaders are seeking to come together. And I see this in intentional relationships that are being fostered, not simply by uh, institutional leaders, um, but by members of congregations who are reaching out to one another. Again, is it perfect? Uh, no, but it is really promising and very encouraging. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today we are talking with Rachel Myers, who is the founder and CEO of She Reads Truth. She Reads Truth uses the Christian Standard Bible as its exclusive translation. Rachel, it is great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So, Rachel, in your vision statement, you use the word beautiful, which is not always a word that you hear floated in vision statements. What was actually your vision in putting that in there? Sometimes when you make something beautiful, it's really inviting. We know that, you know, even with the She Reads Truth Bible, there's nothing we can do to make God's Word more important, more relevant, more necessary, honestly, even more beautiful. But we do think that there are things that we can do and should do to honor it, to revere it, and to give the already beautiful gospel the aesthetic beauty it deserves. We, from the beginning, have cared about what things look like. And I know that that um, hasn't always been the case. And we just think that's a shame. We think that um, God's Word is the most beautiful thing, and it deserves the most attention to that. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So we've mentioned and you've mentioned this tension over 
whether these racist attitudes and actions are coming from outside of the city or whether they're part of a longer history of what's going on in Charlottesville. How have you seen that particular tension play out in church? It's very difficult to find a common language about what we are experiencing. Uh, There is a sense in which people would recognize that there's real pain that the African-American community has experienced over centuries, both by institutionalized racism and slavery, Jim Crow laws, uh, what happened in the Vinegar Hill incident, individual racism that persists in experiences that people have had in personal relationships or encounters. That, that, those questions linger. That pain exists. And how, how do you name that pain in a way that is true to the depth of the experience, but that can be understood by people who have not experienced that or who, have may, who may have been a part of a community that uh, had inflicted that pain? And then the sense of shame uh, that I think communities and individuals can experience as there's a dawning recognition of either racist attitudes that one may have experienced and are seeking to leave behind, or a history uh, that exists in family lineage. There's also the sense of disempowerment, both, of course, with communities of color that have felt disempowered. But I've also noticed that growing sense of disempowerment with elements of you know, predominantly white churches wondering, what, what can we do? What are we able to do? And even if cultural power exists with, you know, dominant white culture, that there is a disempowerment that exists in the understanding of what to do with these cultural advantages. What is the way forward? And even finding language that's suitable in being mutually understanding and understandable is difficult, much less finding action that captures a Christian response. I think there's in evangelicalism, honestly, a tension that um, persists over and over again and ebbs and flows in the history of evangelicalism uh, between seeking fidelity with the gospel that is proclamation-oriented and the social implications of that gospel, whether it's in uh, historical arguments that have occurred uh, and dissent that has occurred between fundamentalism and the liberal social gospel There are streams that I think persist in evangelicalism and trying to figure out what does it mean to be true to Christ, um, both in terms of words as well as deeds, proclaiming salvation through him alone, but at the same time, the social implications of what that means in the present moment. The, The language one in particular, I am wondering if you could speak a little bit more concretely about how you've seen that play out. The culture that we're in right now, the dominant ways that we speak about these issues, um, use language of white supremacy, which certainly exists uh, and must be overtly and vigorously, consciously condemned. And in our churches made statements to that effect. The, the notion of uh, racism as having institutionalized elements to it. So something that is beyond just what happens within a person's heart uh, with respect to attitudes of uh, superiority. You know, we would recognize individual racism, but the extent and the nature of systemic racism uh, is difficult to parcel out. And sometimes when you are part of a system in which this has occurred, it's very hard uh, to 
consciously sort out what the environment we live in uh, means. And so, you know, there's clarity in being able to use some terms uh, like white supremacy, but there is not, and and the notion of institutionalized racism, there's not always clarity in the application of what does that mean. And that application part of the language becomes very muddy because to invoke that language in broad strokes uh, is easy, but then where does white supremacy exist uh, on the micro scale in our actual community? That's a lot harder to name. And then to wonder, is white supremacy even the appropriate term for a community that's seeking to work out these issues of racism, acknowledges uh, that the problem is complex and is seeking to deal with it, uh, is that still white supremacy? Are these organizations, by definition, white supremacists, uh, merely because of the history of its existence? Those are complicated questions, and the difficulty of finding language that is appropriate and suitable and true to the complexity of the situation is something that I think um, we struggle with here. I certainly struggle with it. So let me play a little bit of devil's advocate here. If our outspoken condemnation of white supremacy is actually distracting us from the hardest work uh, involved in racial reconciliation, racial justice. The reason why I say that is when you actually try to do some research on the number of white supremacists in the country, on the I mean, the the, uh, the numbers range from anywhere from five to 6,000 to maybe uh, 29, 30,000. That's like less than 0.003% of the of the population. So it's, in terms of people who actually identify with it in one way or another, it's a very, very small group. And to condemn this group and to put our focus on this group strikes me as a great way to vent and to announce to the world that we're against racism. But I just wonder if uh, it doesn't help. It helps us not then attend to things like structural racism, which is much more subtle and requires a lot more work to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, Mark, I think you're onto something with uh, that distinction. Um, the condemnation of white supremacy is something that Christians can certainly rally behind. The notion of superiority, animosity, uh, oppression that goes along with that terminology should. It's condemnable and should be condemned. This notion of systemic racism, uh, the ways in which uh, certain disadvantages and advantages are institutionalized in decision-making, in the application of law, in societal mores, uh, that is so much more complex. And getting back to the former observation that we were talking about of the complexity of the human heart as an individual, that as Christians we can certainly declare that we um, are woefully sinful creatures and yet wonderfully redeemed uh, creatures as those in Christ. And that kind of conflict that we encounter within the human heart and the complexity that we recognize in our own journey of seeking to be transformed by Christ, that we can take two steps forward and one step backwards, much less than adding to the fact that there is the powers that be, the demonic world that exists that also intersects with our world and the tensions that exist in the spiritual realm and the spiritual battle we face. You know, all these things that we recognize very readily uh, within our own personal existence, you know, we magnify that in institutionalized ways, uh, and then it becomes an incredibly uh, difficult problem. And we all have a, a tendency to try to 
categorize things in ways to make sense of complexity. And those categories, by definition, will often be uh, more um, distinct and stark uh, than is true to actual experience. So if we have certain buckets that we can just conveniently throw problems into uh, and make it neater, then our minds will gravitate toward that. But in reality, we're facing a really complicated problem and finding language and action that addresses the complexity of that problem is awfully difficult uh, because it forces you to have to tease out ways in which we are biased and we can hardly recognize that bias because most of it is subconscious and ways that that bias gets institutionalized is hardly recognized because we are not conscious of it as a society. And then there are ways in which there are overt expressions of racism, both personally, but in Vinegar Hill is an example uh, like that, in which societal community decisions have been made that incredibly disadvantage another element of the community, in this case, the African-American community in Charlottesville, and that has generational impact. But we forget in the sliver of moment that we're experiencing life right now, today, uh, it's easy to assess a problem and say, oh, the problem is this and this and this, forgetting that, no, actually, there are problems that are not only systemic in what we're experiencing today, but they're systemic in how they are connected to generations past. And so the complexity of nature is not only the fact that it's economic, political, cultural, personal now, but it's all those things across time as well. Walter, you mentioned earlier that you've noticed that within particular white Christian communities, a sense of feeling disempowered with regards of what they can do about the reality of racial injustice. And given that your church is a majority white church, I'm just wondering, what are you doing as a pastor and along with the other leaders at your church to cast vision in this area? I think that's uh, a question that it's still ongoing. And so we are very much in process. The issue of racial justice, racism, reconciliation, as I mentioned earlier, has been on uh, the forefront of the church's mind long before I got here. Again, two steps forward, one step back, maybe a step sideways, but steps were being taken and pursued. So I benefit greatly from that. Our church benefits greatly from that history of work. I think another element of it, and this is perhaps uh, the positive vision toward which we would aspire. I would say that racial, from my estimation, as, as we are considering this issue, and as I think about Scripture's call, that racial reconciliation is an essential issue. The redressing of injustices of the past and the present are essential to the work of Christ. But they are penultimate that they actually lead to a greater vision and that we shouldn't really aim simply for racial reconciliation. And by simply, I don't mean to diminish the importance of it. Uh, what I want to do is contextualize it in the larger pursuit of multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism, of a vision of the kingdom of God that at the table that we are drawn to, the great wedding feast that will one day be ours, uh, that Christ makes it clear. People from the north, south, east, west, from the four corners of the earth will be drawn together, uh, and that in heaven we will experience people from 
every segment uh, of existence, nations, language, tribes, peoples, all gathered around. Differences will still exist. There will be diversity, but there will be the unity of worship and the common language of worship. And so ultimately, the vision that we're after is one in which God has laid out a kingdom that embraces all. Social problems will always exist, you know, whether it's race problems or economic problems or gender problems. Social issues will always come to the fore. And yet the overall vision that all these issues uh, come under is this vision of the kingdom in which God brings a redeemed humanity and all its differences uh, together in, in the language of worship and adoration of the one true God through Christ. And that tension of being true and engaged with the present real problems of social and racial reconciliation, but keeping in mind that even as real and complex as that problem is, the greater, more complex, more rich, more theologically eternal a view of what we're after is this view of, of the kingdom. Walter, what are some concrete things that you would ask our listeners to pray for with regards to Charlottesville in the future? Pray for uh, grace. So August 12 on Sunday in the downtown pavilion uh, next to where last year's demonstration uh, and deaths uh, occurred. There was a joint worship service held at 6 p.m. called Better Together. And over 20 churches were involved in this um, cutting from all segments of, of Charlottesville. And it was a time of lament, of repentance, uh, of renewal, and in concluding, of rejoicing in recognition that what draws us together in Christ uh, is far greater than what would separate us uh, through the eyes of the world. And I think lament, repent, renewal, rejoice, these are the things that I would invite people to be praying for. Uh, that there would be a lament uh, for those who have experienced oppression and those who have perpetrated oppression, whether uh, overtly and consciously or through the passivity of inaction, and lamenting that as we stand in solidarity with one another. Lament not simply because of guilt, but lament because of solidarity and love, uh, and also repentance of repentance of both our actions and inaction. But the sense that there is a growing renewal and possibility among the churches here, if we take seriously the implications of the gospel and the real needs that exist, then Christ really is the solution. The church ultimately is the solution. There will not be enough social engineering through our political efforts and educational efforts to transform society in the way that only the gospel can. And that sense that we are drawing together, that renewal of vision, is what led to this amazing, joyful celebration at the end of that worship service as we recognize an exalted Christ who really is bringing people together. So these are the things that I would invite people to pray for, and, and I would suggest are worthy, worthy things to be praying for wherever your listeners may be, for their own churches and communities. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts and that particular challenge, Walter. 
Amen. Yeah, no, that was a good word to end on. Both a vision of the kingdom, the vision of the church united, and praising Christ as we're doing the work of racial reconciliation. Yeah, I think it's a both-and world, so thank you. Thank you very much for letting me be part of this discussion. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we read feedback from listeners. And as many of you probably heard last week, we did a deep dive into the history of Willow Creek Community Church and of the systems and institutions that Bill Hybels helped to build. And we've gotten a lot of people who listen to the show and quite a bit of feedback for a normal episode of Quick to Listen. So Mark and I wanted to take some time to go over some of the feedback that we had. I'm going to read some comments from a listener named Helen Mildenhall. She writes, In your comments about the future of Willow Creek and its influence, you talked about the current problems as if they were just to do with one man, albeit the very influential founder and former senior pastor, Bill Hybels. I have been following the story, and it seems to me there are major problems with Willow Creek's board. Evidently, Bill was never truly accountable to them because they did not hold him accountable. They have missed opportunities for decades to follow up appropriately on firsthand accounts of Bill Hybels' misconduct. And listener Jeremy Moore says this, When someone like Bill Hybels falls, it reminds all of us that we are sinners saved by grace, and rather than create a separate community that keeps out those who fail, we need to create a welcoming community recognizing we are all on the same journey. That has echoes of the editorial that you wrote. Yeah, it does. The thesis of the editorial was that this is a great moment in Willow's life, which happened subsequent to our podcast, and the the fact that the the two lead pastors and the entire board have have resigned, indicating to what seems to me a kind of an act of repentance for their lack of following up on early accusations as quickly and as seriously as they should have. So I applauded them for that, but also tried to help people understand that what we're about in the Christian church is not only listening to the people who have been making these accusations that have been severely hurt by the actions of Willow and Bill, but we also have an obligation to reach out to those who are so accused and bring them to full and complete repentance in in the context of grace. Particularly, I think that you identify the elders as needing to walk alongside. I don't think that is necessarily the calling of every single person. Oh, exactly. Right, right. There needs to be some people in the congregation who are going to walk beside the elders who have just resigned Bill Hybels and his family, not to excuse them, but to just walk with them and then to call them into a deeper, deeper understanding of what has happened, what they've done, and a reliance on God's grace. We have another comment here from listener Thurman Hayes. He says, enjoy quick to listen, but the discussion on Willow Creek was lacking. Instead of uncritically extolling Willow's influence, a deeper look at the perils of megachurch celebrity pastor culture would be helpful. What does it say about evangelicalism that we promote leadership gurus whose leadership is radically dysfunctional? Actually, Thurman is quite right, uh, but we feel like that's been done in a lot of other contexts on CT. But that's definitely something that needs to be continually looked at, the uh, celebrity pastor culture we have in our our movement, for better or for worse. It, It allows for tremendous and dynamic entrepreneurial growth, and it allows for a lot of dysfunction. I would also encourage... Thurman and anyone else who does want some of those critiques to read through our CT Pastor Archives content. I reshared a number of pieces that we have on similar related issues over the weekend because I think there's a lot of wisdom in there that's that's trying to critique and push back on that. But Thurman is right that that was not the focus of the podcast that we did last week. 
Listener Aaron Damiani uh, writes this. Thanks for the Quick to Listen podcast. I enjoyed listening to it today. I especially appreciated the history of Willow Creek in our movement, as well as the perspective on Willow's impact over the years and around the world. And then uh, Aaron adds a number of questions to further the conversation. I'll only read one of them, and uh, we'll we'll try, try to respond. Given that Bill Hybels was the leading personality of the church growth movement, will we now react against many of its features? like adopting secular business practices, pastors, CEO, and or celebrity, farming out pastoral care, and assumptions that it makes, like uh, healthy churches equals growing churches in size. And I'd say, at one level, it already has been. Uh, We have a very popular blog on our website, uh, written by a man named Carl Vader, who is really into small churches and the value of small churches in the kingdom. And he's made a few biting comments about such things. But whether it will increase as a result of this, maybe there'll be a spike in in it. But uh, I don't know. We it's just part of part of the landscape, in my opinion. Well, one thing that we tried to talk about on the podcast was the institution building that Willow Creek has done. And sometimes there's this critique when it comes to personalities that they have no succession plan. They didn't kind of do anything to actually shape the infrastructure around them. And so when they disappear. Maybe they die, scandal forces them out or whatever, then everything that they try to build for just kind of collapses in and of itself. But if anything, I think that the podcast made clear that there's a lot of institutional roots that exist and that there's many people who have a vested interest in this particular philosophy and understanding of church. So I do think it will probably maybe embolden some of the critics, but some of the the things that Hybels push don't necessarily seem to be necessarily correlated to these um, allegations of sexual misconduct. For instance, if Bill Hybels was a marriage and family guru who wrote books on this particular issue and then seemed to be revealed to be a huge hypocrite in that area, um, I don't think it will be as kind of damaging for the message that he had been spreading and selling for the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, Bill's advice on leadership, very, the various aspects of leadership are just mostly wise. And we do live in a culture, the larger our culture gets in terms of population, the more and more you're going to see larger institutions trying to minister to people. We're a culture that's used to being ministered to or uh, served by major corporations and large institutions. Our schools are gigantic institutions compared to what they were in the 19th century, both at the elementary, high school and uh, college level. So there there will be a need for large institutions to reach out to people. And I don't know that we can simply push them aside and say, no, everything should be small and beautiful. We probably end up needing both. Wow. What a Mark Kelly response. <laughs> well, whether we need both or not, we're going to have both because of the, just the, the, uh, the way our population is growing. All right. Thank you, everyone who wanted to give us feedback on this episode. We have read it all, we've reflected on it all, and we really appreciate those of you who listen to our podcast and let us know what you think. As always, you can do that by going to Twitter, we're at CT Podcasts, or you can send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that is bringing them joy this week. You're up, Mark. Well, this week I, I discovered a, a, cl- a sort of a classic in Christian uh, spirituality, uh, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. He was a Christian Missionary Alliance 
pastor, theologian from the 1950s, lived in the Chicago area. His most famous book is Knowledge of the Holy, which is about the attributes of God, which I read years ago. But for some, I can't even remember the thing that caused me to want to read his The Pursuit of God. So I downloaded it and on my phone and went for a walk the other night, and I was just impressed with how much wisdom there was and uh, earnestness and sobering reflection on the need to, uh, to, to pursue God with ever more vigor, pointed critiques of the church of his day, which struck me as just as relevant as today, and pointed critiques of the individual Christian and how we can get lax in, in pursuing the one thing that is the greatest thing of all, and that is a uh, relationship with God and Christ. So I just found that it was a very bracing walk. Terrific. Mark, where can we find you outside of this? I publish something called The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I Report. You can find it at ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report, in which I uh, link to articles and comment on them. All right. Walter? I recently celebrated my 24th anniversary with my wife, Tony, and I am still in the wonderful glow of recognizing how greatly God has blessed me through Tony. Congrats. That's amazing. Thanks. Wow. That's very cool. Where did you guys meet? We met uh, in Connecticut over 25 years ago. At school or at church? or Yes, at, uh, at, at school. I was uh, on staff with a crew at that point at Yale University, and she was graduating uh, as a student at Yale. So that's where we met. Well, congratulations to you guys. Walter, are you available online if our listeners want to find you there afterwards? Yes. Uh, just come to the Trinity website and you'll see links there for sermons and other resources. All right. So my precious moment this week was going on a tour in this far south side neighborhood of Chicago called Beverly. I really like going on local history tours and I have not been on enough. And this tour covered anything from the architecture. I guess there's a number of Frank Lloyd Wright and other of his contemporaries when it comes to architects' homes that exist in the neighborhood. It looked at Chicago history. It looked at the history of how racial injustice has played out there. It looked at the long lineage of Irish Catholic families that live there. And it was just really fun to get to see a different part of the city. I've only been there like four or five times since I moved in because it's not very close to where I live at all. So I'm really thankful for those type of walking tours to learn more things. Listeners can find me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L on Twitter. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. We invite everyone who really enjoyed and appreciated the podcast to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is available there or almost everywhere else that you'd want to get a podcast. You can find our podcast there as well. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark, and you can support the show again by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine and going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.